Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined today by Fred Anderson. He is a Swedish writer, published author, television producer, and a UFO researcher in his own right, sharing many UFO cases from Sweden online and through Twitter and his blog. And if you do not follow him on Twitter, at Homo Satanus, it's absolutely fantastic. Fred, thanks for joining me today, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for for inviting me to our strange skies. I'm uh, I'm a little starstruck being here, to be honest. I am. I am. You know, but I'm I'm trying to keep my calm, and and I, I I'm I I hope I won't sound like the Swedish chef. Uh, you know, so I'm 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 just I'm just trying here to to you know to 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 find my peace in what I'm doing. So you know. You know, okay, yeah, I will breathe. Thank you. <laughs> so, so you work. Uh, you know, one of the things that you do in Sweden is, uh, you know, you're you're a producer. You work in television. So, what is it? You what shows do you work on uh, over there? Well, uh, since uh, I, I mean, I've been working in the TV business for like twenty years, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been doing a lot of, you know, the usual reality shows. You know, like. Uh, like Bachelor, uh, the Swedish version, of course, and um, Farman, which is like Bachelor, but on a farm, basically. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and but uh, like five, six years ago, I, I got a gig being a segment producer for a paranormal show called The Oshenda, which means the unknown. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's one of those shows that's been on forever, forever. And I did like 50 episodes and it was so much fun working with the paranormal. The show itself, you know, it's up and down quality wise. But, you know, it was uh, it, 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 it made me even more interested in actually focusing on the paranormal, the, the, the strange, the weird. And uh, so so since 2019, I've been working almost exclusively with a show called Spökjakt, which means ghost hunt. Uh, it's a very, very big paranormal show. Uh, our team is going around Europe and Sweden and investigating famous haunted places. It's a very typical haunted show, uh, ghost ghost hunt show, but uh, it, it looks fantastic. And I'm very, very happy with my work in it as a researcher and story producer. And uh, we've just been shooting season four and we're going to start shooting season five uh, a little bit later this year. I'm just waiting for a date. Um, so uh, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of reach, research jobs, um, story producing, uh, mainly behind the camera. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I earn my living, you can say. I mean, that's cool as hell, man. I dig that. That's, that's awesome because like... <laughs> I, I work in a nursing home, so like, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I couldn't do that. It seems too hard, you know, yeah. and, and, and in times like this, this also, it's like, uh, well, I, I, I've seen you mention it on, on Twitter and I'm like, wow, how, how do you have that energy and, and power to do it? I'm, I'm, I'm amazed and I'm, I'm, I have so much respect for for uh, your line of business you know it's it's hard it's very hard right now but you know you you just kind of you show up every day and and for me it's just 
uh, and for me in particular this week, because this week has been a nightmare. Uh, you know, I, I do, I, I do the laundry for my nursing home and, uh, ours is, it, it houses about eh, upwards of like 50 to 60 people. And you're talking about right now, close to 500 pounds of laundry a day. And, uh, right as my shift started yesterday, one of my washers went down. So I'm down a washer and, uh, yeah, it's just a nightmare, nightmare week. It's also been cold as hell. Uh, it is. Yeah. It's like negative, uh, it's negative 17 degrees Fahrenheit now. So it's like negative 20 some odd Celsius. So yeah, it's, um, it's been, it's been an interesting week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 now you're here, and I'm I'm very happy to talk with you about this subject. You know, I'm I'm I I I, I hope that will will ease your mind a little bit from from this tough week. Absolutely, uh, yeah, uh, folks. Today we're talking about Swedish UFO cases because, uh, like I was telling Fred before we started, uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of UFO coverage comes from Scandinavia, and. Um, a lot of what you get is generally, hey, there were ghost rockets here in 1946, and that's about it. <laughs> like, uh, uh, you know, not a lot, not a lot of uh, stuff makes it to. Uh, and, and I think this gets to the problem with a lot of UFO cases is that if it's not written about in English, it doesn't exist. It's not covered. It's just. Um, it's it's in this gray space that people don't know about because you know of this language barrier so it's definitely important to cover ufo cases from a myriad of countries and and given how much you know about ufo cases from sweden it it only made sense to have you on to talk about this because um i think a lot of the coverage uh, aside from the ghost rockets and and the only other case that I really knew was the Domston Blobs case, which you know was uh, proven to be a hoax like thirty years later. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's the that's the um, that's the thing, you know. And but you know, I, I can understand how how the ghost rockets, for example, is still so popular. I mean, it's it's mentioned in every book Jacques Vallée has written. You know, he mm-hmm. always have a chapter on on uh, ghost rockets. Uh, but I, I always I, I I bring this up from time to time. Uh, I I before the ghost rockets, we had the ghost flyers, ghost airplanes mm-hmm. over Sweden from uh, I think it was 1936, 36, 37, and which led to the ghost rockets. And we still had ghost rockets in the eighties in in Sweden, which is quite cool because there's two confirmed uh, crashes um, uh, in lakes in during the 80s uh, multiple witnesses they never found anything so I, I still find ghost rockets pretty interesting and then we had the ghost submarines in the 80s and now as you might have seen we have ghost drones everywhere <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it's that's how it is to 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 have you know uh, uh, Russia as a neighbor. You have this paranoia, so people see a lot of stuff and experience a lot of stuff uh, in in times like this. Um, but yeah, there's so much more than ghost rockets. There's so much more. Yeah, and you know, just 
through what you've shared on Twitter, uh, it's like a myriad of different things. You know, there's abduction accounts. There are, you know, CE3 and UFO landing cases. And uh, we're going to be giving all of you folks tonight uh, this all of this. Um, and, and the first story that we're going to hit on is it's probably aside from, you know, ghost rockets and Domston uh, is probably the only other well-known kind of case that made its way uh, into the English, uh, you know, translations of certain uh, UFO publications in the seventies. And that's uh, Gusta Carlson. And uh, for for this story, like this, this took place in 1946. This is way before UFO landings are really a thing, like it, which is incredible. And it's not a story that really didn't come out until uh, what, like the early 1970s or so. Yes, like 71, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So Gosta is an interesting guy because he's he's a uh, he's an entrepreneur. He's an inventor. He has an interest in hockey. He founds a hockey team. He, he uh, you know, builds a training facility. Uh, it, was he like a really well-known guy when he came out with the story back in the 70s? Yeah, he was quite famous. But, you know, it, it, because what he worked with was, uh, I don't know the English name for it, but, uh, um, you know, some kind of natural medicine. He uses pollen uh for for different different things so he was quite big in a in a in a certain part of sweden and he was a quite colorful guy so he was always in the newspapers he was interviewed uh, he was very very fond of hockey as you mentioned he loved hockey uh so he 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 was a he was a he was a rich wealthy guy a uh, uh, huge personality uh, who was also quite mysterious, you know. I don't, I don't know if you heard this, but the the legend says that is is that he used uh, poisonous snakes to guard his factory during those first years. For example, what? <laughs> yes, he, he just let them out in the in the factory building, you know, and just gather them. I guess gather them together somehow in the morning. Uh, that's that's. <laughs> It's one of the stories about him, you know, just a, uh, what a guy. <laughs> just a really eccentric guy. I dig that because like this story, while, uh, you know, it is, it has that eccentric uh, nature to it. It's still grounded in a lot of what we see in UFO accounts and close encounters that we get in the 1960s and 1970s. But um, his particular story uh, begins on the evening of May 18th, 1946, near the town of Engelholm. And uh, he he says that he was going out to collect uh, the, the pollen uh, for his um, uh, kind of like his holistic medicine is what I'm assuming that he kind of did. Just kind of like um, like maybe more like herbal kind of stuff, which, um, you know, is still it's still something that it's still popular in the United States and such. So I can kind of, I can kind of see where he's coming from. So um, uh, as he's starting to walk back, it's getting dark out and through some trees, a short distance away from him, he could see what he thought was a, a, a fire in the trees. So uh, within the forest, there was this clearing and, and upon closer examination, he notices a disc shaped object with this couple on top of it. And it was about, 
16 meters or 52 feet in diameter and uh, four meters or about 13 feet tall. And through the cupola on top, he was kind of able to see like a cabin inside. There were some windows and um, above this cupola, he described uh, what he what we would call like a mast or like something that like a periscope or that a submarine would have. And it stood about five meters or 16 feet above the craft. And it pro- and it projected this light that he was seeing in the forest. And from the underside of this object, there was this kind of oblong fin that was stretching from the center to the edge. And, um, you know, when you see images of this, uh, because there's a monument that they erected in 1972, um, it, it's a very iconic kind of looking ufo it's very distinct the uh the mast on top of it just like gives it the certain look as does this kind of like fin underneath it so he describes the light that's coming off of this thing and and this craft is also standing on like a pair of legs there's like a ladder extended underneath it and he sees this light and he describes it kind of like it's like flowing much like a river and uh Beyond the light, though, uh, there was something that caught his attention, and it was a, it was a figure. It was clothed in white overalls that hugged the skin, and it was as tall as Gosto himself. So, and, and it was just kind of standing there, looking, and you know, uh, the the white overalls they were accented with these black gloves and boots and this uh, really nice looking belt, and this figure. It it raises his arm as he's coming forward in a gesture to stop him, like don't come any forward. So he does, and, and Ghost is just he's standing there looking around. Um, he was about uh, ten meters or thirty two feet away, and everything around him was silent. The only thing that he really noticed was that uh, he could hear these figures moving within the grass. So he saw at. at the most um, 11, what he described as men and women um, working in and around this craft. Uh, There were like what he described as guards is also in front of it too. And um, he could see uh, through these like uh, transparent kind of helmets that the women, they had this like ashen color, long hair while the men, they kind of wore these black caps over their heads. And uh, so at one point, Gosta gets a little braver and he and he moves a couple steps forward again. And the guard raises his hand up again, like, hey, just stop. So again, he does. And that's when he notices this kind of like black box that's strapped to his chest and it's suspended kind of like a chain. And the guard just kind of totally turns in his direction and, and he hears a clicking sound that he assumes is coming from the the lamp that he has on his forehead. What he notices later on when he brings it home is that the battery is completely drained. He had put in a new battery recently. There was no reason why it should have lost charge, but he kind of assumes that whatever this guard was doing, he, he messed with his headlamp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, um, this this always. I, I was I was laughing a little bit because you you, you mentioned a, a, a fancy belt or something uh, on the on the 
on the spaceman. And I, I love how fashion always mm-hmm. is important in these cases. You know, it's it's uh, it's and there there is uh, later he actually describes the the space people as I'm quoting now as sexy. And, uh, and especially the women, but the, the men were muscular, you know, and very well built, you know. And so, so the, there is, uh, I, there, I, obviously, I would say these are the, the, the classic Nordics types that some mm-hmm. people uh, brings up in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, at one point, he notices that what what this light that's being projected, it almost looks kind of like a barrier that's being put up to protect the people on the inside from uh, what he assumes is the earth's atmosphere or something like that. So they're working within this sphere kind of of light. And then one of the women walks up to the edge of the barrier and she throws an object to him. So how would, uh, because the, in the, uh, the seventies flying saucer review article. He didn't really do a good job describing what it was that she threw to him. What what was it exactly that she threw to him? Well, um, you know, th- there was a lot of things thrown around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it depends really what they mean here, because there, there was this little, uh, I would say, some kind of rod, uh, some kind mm. of uh, made of some kind of stone. Um, uh, this woman threw it not at him, but she threw it, you know, a little bit from from the uh, from the spaceship, the the UFO, and he kind of registered uh, where she threw it, you mm-hmm. know, and tried to remember that. And it it wasn't until next day when he decided to go back, where he suddenly remembered that oh, she she threw th- something. And he picked up this little this rod. Is that a good word for it? Um, mm. This little crystal stone thing. I'm I'm not a biologist or something here, you know. <laughs> uh, so, and it had these small markings on. Um, uh, this, you know, this this part with it with it, with this rod is quite confusing, and I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure what you read about it. But uh, um, in in so in some parts of the story, it's kind of uh, 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 like a square rectangular piece with its markings on. Mm-hmm. In a different story, uh, which he did with Ocean Semich of a uh, uh, journalist, the first one who interviewed him, it it he had he had uh, transformed it into a, a scarabee. This uh, um, so it looked like a scarabee. This this bug, this Egyptian mm-hmm. bug. Yeah, uh, the and the, both those uh, both those versions of this rod uh, then kind of created separate timelines, depending yeah. <laughs> where 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 you read about it. Uh, you know, so uh, I don't know which one is mentioned in Flying Saucer Review, though. But uh, but uh, f- fascinating thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. The scarabee is is probably in the hands of the the children of the journalists still, uh, but the other one is lost. Uh, his his daughter might have it actually still, but she she refuses anyone to look at it even. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally understand where that's coming from. But that is the nature of any like evidence that pops up in, in a UFO case. But I think what's interesting and what we'll get into here in a little bit is that there is evidence of this case that has lasted uh, for decades since it yeah. since it uh, since the landing took place. Like there's still marks out there, uh, oh. which, which is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to me. Yeah, I I don't want to debunk it or anything, but it's right. it's uh, with 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 Justa, there is so many different versions. Mm. Uh, he tells different things, but uh, there is also, like you mentioned, uh, uh, there is traces uh, of mm. where the ship landed, and these traces are actually visible on an aerial photo from 1947. Yeah. Um, so it's there's been theories that oh he made it he made them himself or something like that, or horses made them um, because there was some kind of you know some kind of circus school or something nearby. Uh, but but the, the fact is that uh, it looks you know when you when you look at those aerial photos for forty seven and you see these markings down there, you kind of feel that something happened to Justa. Without a doubt, the question is exactly what. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, I would say, without bashing him, that there's parts fantasy, parts imagination, and mm-hmm. parts reality in it. And yeah, uh, and uh, that's what I also find very intriguing because what's what, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would, you know, just knowing because I didn't realize until yesterday when you were sharing uh, some of the. Uh, stuff uh that you have in in a book that you you own is that like his story is it, it goes beyond like the initial telling into this like more elaborate contactee kind of story which is interesting because he kind of reminds me a little bit of uh ed walters uh in gulf mm-hmm. breeze and just how eccentric the story just seems to become so uh yeah like me a lot less gun toting i'll say that a lot less gun toting <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sure that just, uh, uh, you know, he he believed in what was happening to him. He mm-hmm. and Klaus Swan, who's probably the the guy who's been re- doing most research research on the case, uh, would probably agree with me because just, uh, I mean, his story is so elaborate, and you have all this. You have this amazing stone. Uh, you have this. Uh, you have the stone with the face on, for example, which uh, you have some kind of uh, vessel, some kind of liquid vessels for liquid that they threw, but they, I think they kind of uh, was destroyed in a fire. Mm-hmm. And you have the markings out there. Uh, what I find. More even more intriguing is that, like you mentioned, the, the contactee part of the story, uh, because just a couple of days later, I think it was two days later, he felt a little bit sick. You know, he felt a bit heavy in the head, and he took a painkiller and some water with honey in, and suddenly he saw this black box you mentioned. You know, mm. that was hanging from the from the spaceman. And he looked through it, and suddenly it became wider, and he was inside the spaceship and starting to have these conversations with the crew. And this went on for a number of years uh, to to the degree that he felt himself that he was going crazy. Uh, he, he was questioning his sanity. 
this often happened during nighttime, and he, I mean, he had to get his own room, you know, because his, he was disturbing his wife so much because he woke up with these stories. And there is, he, there is notes from, you know, like forty-seven and forty-eight uh, uh, diary notes which he he, he wrote down with these stories in so it wasn't something he made up much later you know to 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 build upon the ufo story this was stuff that he actually experienced in one way or another already you know just a, just days or a, a year after the, the the first incident um so it's it's the more you start digging into the case the more uh convincing it actually becomes yeah yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Like, uh, uh, it, it kind of reminds me in a way of the uh, Imyarvi case, because, uh, mm. you know, up front, it's this case with these two guys, Arno and Esco, and they have this incredible experience while they're out cross country skiing. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, about a decade later, there's all these other like contacts that Arno claims to have, which also includes um, this one incident in which uh his camera was taken from him by this woman that he was having contacts with who who then disappeared and left him a rock so he holds on to this rock for a little while he's like hey i got this rock at least and then they're like no you got to get rid of it so he's like no i'm not gonna get rid of it and he's walk outside walking one day and he sees like a floating axe head and he gets the idea okay i gotta go throw this rock in a pond and it's like what <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a that's a amazing case, really. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if you ever looked into the case of uh, Richard Höglund, uh, who was a contactee uh, that started to receive, uh, you know, to experience very odd things in the sixties. There's a book written about the case, a Swedish book by Håkan Blomqvist. Uh, I, I I will just go through it very shortly because it's mm -hmm. an incredibly long story. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's absolutely. Like, it's it's like insane. Uh, uh, Richard, Höglund, uh, uh, Richard Höglund had problems with his kidney. It caused him a lot of pain. Uh, so he was home from work and he was out with his dog and he went down to a lake. And of course, what do he see by the lake? He see a UFO. And there comes out some space people that kind of floats out. They have their like, Kind of, they have transparent clothes, so they were basically naked anyway. Mm. And they they heal him from this this uh, problematic uh, kidney. Uh, like a year later or something, they he goes back to the to the to the lake, and they show up again, and they start giving him orders. And <laughs> this goes on from you know mid sixties to the late. 70s when he dies actually uh where they tell him to go to uh what was it now bahamas mm. uh, he should go to bahamas and he should uh buy property there and build a house and there he will keep uh, having contact with aliens from an underwater base nearby uh so he gets dragged into this this uh, incredible, almost James Bond-style adventure where he takes his poor wives, they move to Bahamas, uh, uh, they get involved in what would be considered some kind of spy stories, but with aliens. 
uh, from an alien priest, Father Rapas, I think his name was. He he gets a, a, a metallic plate, uh, which is he's ordered to to hold on to this plate, you know. Uh, but he's afraid of this plate and he buries it in the forest and, you know, it kind of disappears. It's such a, such a bizarre context, this story that feels like it's, it has no point. Just like me trying to retell the story here. It has no point. (laughs) You know, it just goes on and on. And this poor guy is just, you know, he gets depressed from this, of course, because these aliens, they come from him from all places and just want him to go and do missions all over the world. Um, I, I really think you should... I, th- th- this was a very, very, very crappy retelling of the story, to be honest. Uh, uh, it's a lot more fun if, 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 you, if you read the book or some proper articles about it. But, uh, you know, compared to Justa, Justa used it for something you know he 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 got this this kind of inspiration from his meetings i want to correct you on one thing yeah yeah at that first meeting uh at that time he was working for sc which uh, you know it's the the train system in sweden Mm. the the, what do you call it railroads yeah And, and he had an interesting interest in beekeeping but Mm -hmm. he wasn't like out gathering gathering pollen or something like that he, he was just out for a nightly walk because when he came home that same night or even morning uh, his wife looked scared and said you're you're yellow you're yellow and he looked in the mirror and he was completely yellow and he he, he thought he you know was poisoned or something like that and then he realized that somehow he got a pollen on him and at that moment, he also had some idea how to use this pollen. Uh, so, so he was kind of indirectly at first inspired by the meeting with the space people to do something with, with pollen for, for uh, you know, n- nutrients and, and different things. And every time he had meetings with aliens the years after, he had this... this uh, amazing insights what what to do with the, with, the, with the pollen and how to and how to use them and how to collect them because at the time it was very very difficult to collect pollen uh, I, I uh, uh, and when he finally managed to collect pollen he had like 600 kilos of it which which was like the this this is absurd because one one piece of pollen weighs like one you know one, you know, there's it's, no weight in it. Yeah, it's very minuscule, very small. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he managed through this technique, uh, which I'm not aware of actually, to to gather 600 kilos of it. So he 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 he, he got some kind of inspiration, some kind of insight or knowledge mm-hmm. from the aliens the years after how to work with pollen and how to do business with it and how to help people with it. Um, so he, he in, you know, compared to Rickard, he, 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 he obviously had use for it. And yeah. Um, yeah. For him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and like, see, that's, that's why it's good to have you here, Fred, because the original article, it just seemed like uh, it might've been a translation issue because uh, it, uh, a lot of what was in there, just like, 
especially uh, uh, at the beginning of it, is just like, why would he be out late at night collecting pollen? That doesn't ex- that doesn't make sense to me. Like, in um, okay, I think it well, was uh, I can't remember who translated it, but I think it was Gordon Creighton who who published uh, who wrote like kind of published the article and like the thing about Gordon Creighton is like, I appreciate that he was able to translate a lot of different languages because I think he knew at least like two or three, but sometimes his, uh, his translating was not very good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's not an important detail, but I kind of like that his his, his yeah. wife got so scared for him looking yellow, and that kind of you know also started something. Um, you know, I, I wish I I had the time to to translate the stories he, he told about his meetings. You know, when he was up in the mothership a couple of years later, I think it was in forty eight, for example, where his uh, He's kind of being taught by the, the by the space people, you know, philosophy, and he gets explained that um, you know, uh, he, here's where it gets problematic, to be honest, um, mm. just that because he's, uh, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> white people are from space, uh-huh. ah, and uh, black people are just like s- slaves, you can say. Uh, okay, people. yeah, no, I okay, got you. Uh, yeah, yep. you know, I, I don't want to go there, but you know, yeah. he had some. There's some very problematic things he he he, he learned from the space people. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. I can see that because that that is definitely part of this phenomenon. Whether you're talking about Eric von Donneken or some of the contactees, like there is some inherent racism in this stuff and you kind of got to acknowledge that when it comes up. So I, I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, well, I, 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 I didn't know that myself until I read Klaus Swan's book, you know, that detail and his mention. And I was like, Oh, Oh, okay. Okay. I, I understand. All right. This is, this is, you know, how, how Justa describes it. It, it is very, it feels quite, um, um, not not nice i would say it it's anyway, uh, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it has a very aryan feel to it let's just <laughs> yeah. put it like that yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh, then again you have to you have to i i no, okay i don't want to talk shit about the south of sweden here but uh, the south of sweden are more racist than the rest of sweden uh, so and it's kind of it, it, it's it's kind of there you know uh, yeah um, so I don't know if you can. You, it, that's no excuse, of course, but but I think it's more common uh, in those parts of Sweden than in other parts of Sweden. Oh, I'm going to get so much shit for this, you know. Oh, I'm, you're fine. fine. But I'm. <laughs> you're fine. Believe me, like yeah. this is something I don't shy away from. Like yeah. a- anybody who has listened to my presentations on Africa understands that <laughs> there was somebody I had an issue with, and there was somebody a UFO writer who had very distinct issues with it and contacted me via email to express his interests uh his uh beliefs that one i shouldn't have been covering those topics and and two uh he believed that i kind of dismissed the the uh experiences of the person that i was you know acknowledging was being racist but you know i didn't but no. I understand that if you want to take your frustrations out on anybody, take them out on me. That's completely fine. <laughs> yeah. 
I will ignore your emails. They will go into the trash bin. It's completely fine. But like, I mean, it's it's good to know. It's good to know that stuff. But like, I think uh, the 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 thing that to me convinces me that something happened is that there's this. Uh, there are multiple aerial photographs that have been taken mm. of this area from like. 1947 it's photographed again i think in the 50s 1963 1972 or something like that and there is this giant mark on the ground it's a round it's a circle it's a giant circle kind of it, uh the aerial photographs that i've seen of it, it almost looks like um almost looks like a like say if you um if you're on the beach and you draw a giant circle in the sand, that's kind of what it looks like. It's mm. there's a giant circle there. Uh, there are, you know, it, the FSR article talks about how there are like other marks in the ground that may have been filled in. We don't really know there's kind of some controversy there with that, but um, there does seem to be some uh, landing traces here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, and, and people in the area knew about these markings from the fifties. Mm. Before the fifties, there's no stories about this. The the this uh, this markings at the spot, but after that, uh, people knew about them. And for me, it also for, for me that's kind of proof that something happened. Something, whatever it was maybe landed or someone did something at the spot. I highly doubt that just himself would go there in, you know, 46 or 47 or something and do this. Uh, Martins, I highly, highly doubt it. He had more, you know, pressing issues at the time, you know, you know, trying to survive in general, uh, uh, working with his inventions, uh, with his, uh, with the, with the pollen industry, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I would say that the, 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 his diary notes from from uh, the late forties and these markings, uh, it's for me quite strong proof that something went down there. Really, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Because I like I don't understand how you could create those marks and that they would be untouched by any weather that hit that area. There, mm-hmm. there's just like no way to me that uh, you could do anything that would create a mark that looked like that, that would last for decades. Like, uh, has anybody been out there lately? Is it still out there? It, it is still up. I was actually trying to find the information about it today. It's, it's still up, but there is some issues with it being on private ground. Uh, mm-hmm. The owners are fine with the monument and everything. They think it's nice, but they don't want to pay for the restorations. They want the 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 the, the local government to pay for it. You know all that kind of stuff because it's still it attracts people. It attracts tourists, but it's still there. And I'm I'm really hoping to go there this summer because I would love to see it uh, and explore this area because I mean. Uh, you have the 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 landing site itself you have this this grave i don't know if you mention it the the, no. the, the yeah uh, the grave that the aliens dug there that he, he and um, there's also somewhere nearby uh, uh, a fort i think it's torn down a military fort but in 45 he was up at that fort and he actually saw 
he claims himself three purple uh, lights um, uh, flying through the air. And that was his actually his first encounter with something you can call a UFO. Or uh, he thinks, of course, it was some kind of alien spaceship. And um, so, so it, I mean, it, uh, he, he was clearly before his time. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yes. uh, and I mean, uh, in the in the article that I read, he said at first, because I think they were it was like a direct quote from him, is that at first he didn't think that they were aliens. He thought that there was a military operation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then only later with these further contacts did they become aliens. Yeah, exactly. And I mean he he he's he was also quite stubborn with the fact that he he wasn't he wasn't really sure that there were physical beings and that the the meetings he had uh at least after uh May 18th, 1946 was was uh uh, was some kind of psychic connection, you know. It mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't in this this physical realm that we're living in, and so he he himself was also quite aware that, okay, what I'm experiencing is so crazy that you know this can't be a physical experience I'm having, mm-hmm. uh, and I. I like that he was so aware of that. You know, he he went up and and flew with his spaceship and he visited planets and stuff. But he he kind of understood that, okay, this this is not this is not real real. This is not my reality. This is something else. Uh, so he 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 might parts of him I would say was batshit bonkers crazy to be honest. But <laughs> there was also <laughs> something very very. Uh, he, he was a smart guy. He was a yeah. smart guy, even if he obviously had some problematic issues with with non-white people. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, the one photograph of the guy that I've ever seen is one of the best photographs ever because he's like all dressed up in this suit with a hat, and he's in the middle of the woods. It's like a very, uh, it's almost like alien-like in its own right because it's like. Yeah, you would expect to have like an alien encounter with a person that looked like this out in the woods. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I know which photo you mean. I love it. It's, yeah. I think it was the first photo I saw of him also. So, yes. Um, so uh, uh, like uh, last week's episode uh, with AP Strange, uh, we're going to be trading off stories. So, uh, Fred, why don't you take the next one here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We've been with Justa here for quite a while, I noticed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're going to skip ahead a couple of years to 1969, where the skies were relatively empty and free from satellites, airplanes, and clearer from pollution. It's under one of those evening skies, Shell Naslund, part-time manager for the transmitter station at Hemliden had an incredibly strange experience. The station is uh, seated just two kilometers outside the small community of Treherningsjö. And it was there he saw something truly out of the ordinary on March 12th that year. He kept quiet for three years as his history was met with suspicion and mockery uh, at the time (laughs) of the incident, you know. (laughs) But he finally told this uh, in uh, to uh, researcher Ragnar Söderberg in 1972. <laughs> it was 6 p.m. when Shell arrived at the station. It was a cold evening between 20 to 25 minus degrees Celsius, and the sky was crystal clear. 
as he's done many times before, he did a routine check of the equipment and then sat down in the small pantry to read the evening newspaper. It didn't take long until his peace was disturbed by the sound of alarms, one after another. The transmitter who helped send out television and radio signals indicated severe disturbance. As both the phone, radio and television worked, he was surprised to see that every indicator lamp was glowing red. Scratching his head, he took a look outside, but nothing was to be seen. The next step was to call his colleagues at the transmitter station in Sundsvall to tell them about the situation. Eventually, the the alarms stopped and the lamps went dark, and Shell still had no idea what was going to happen. Isn't it exciting, Rob? You know it is. Like I am, I'm glued to my seat, man. Like this is, this is, this is the Fred Anderson experience, folks. This is what Fred brings to the table. This is what being a hell of a writer uh, it brings to this podcast. So I appreciate it, sir. Well, approximately six thirty p.m., half an hour after he arrived at his workplace, he suddenly had a feeling. It was like something told me to go outside, like an impulse coming to me. When opening the door and glancing out, he saw something that forever changed his life. And it was about to get even more strange. (laughs) God, I'm teasing this so much. Okay. You absolutely, are. you absolutely are, and I'm telling you, people are, are gripped. They are gripped to their seat, man. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Fifteen meters away from the door where he was standing, where a deforestation area began and continued down a depression, he saw an enormous craft hovering near the ground. It was at the same level at the, as the facility, which was constructed on a slightly higher ground with a diameter of 150 meters and about 5 to 6 meters of height. The craft completely covered the depression all up to the station. It's big, you know. It's like <laughs> I the sketches that you've shared of this thing, this thing is absolutely huge. Like, in one of them, like, you get the, the, the bat, the, uh, like, pulled back view uh like kind of from the side and it's just taking up a lot of space in the other one this thing is just like taking up three quarters of the sketch that is made for this thing it is absolutely huge absolutely huge. yeah it's it's like it's absurd uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, but here's also the weird thing with it the contours of it were slightly undefined and fussy and, you know, Shell, he, he understandably couldn't believe what he was looking at. The experience didn't become less strange when he noticed the opening. It was like a three-dimensional film, a tunnel into the craft. It had a gray-blue glow coming from the entrance, and there was a movement both on the inside and outside of it, some kind of intelligent beings. There were like spray-painted boxes, like clouds without clearly defined angles. They levitated about (laughs) two inches above the ground and were about 130 to 135 centimeters tall and with a width of 30 to 40 centimeters. In total, there were around 10 beings, three or four of them on the inside of the tunnel-like opening. 
In a later interview, he was asked if, if he thought the scene could have been a media projection of some sort, but he dismissed it. It was simply too odd to describe the words. While studying the strangeness unfolding in front of the transmitter station, the thought struck him that he, you know, maybe he should call the police. <laughs> <laughs> I always get back to it, you know. I, I I'm not sure I would call the police, you know. If I <laughs> what, is, yeah, what are the police yeah, going to do? But, I don't know, but <laughs> but we'll get back to the police in a moment here. <laughs> By the way, but it, it, this is serious, Rob. You know, this, I know, this, I know, but it's just like uh, th- it's those details that kind of make it because uh, you know we did the uh, New Berlin landing with with Tobias Whalen and. You know, the witnesses to that were at one point were like, should we call the cops or like the military or, you know, you know what? They're just trying to fix their thing over there. Just let them be. okay." (laughs) (laughs) Well, here, I mean, he he, he was thinking about the police because, I mean, this is a transmitter station and it's protected area. And this was like in the middle of the Cold War also. You know, Russia isn't far away and uh, Sweden was constantly on high alert, you know. Mm. Never know what those Ruskies would do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, something stopped him from leaving his position by the door and heading for the phone. Instead, he had this strong feeling he should let them inside Oh, I love that. I love that. (laughs) Holding up the door, he then experienced how seven two eight beings floated inside the building just centimeters away from him. Uh, Our stunned transmitter station manager wanted to reach out and touch them, but once again, he couldn't move and just did as he was told telepathically. It was there studying the visitors up close. He had a feeling that what he was seeing was box-shaped shells, like a protection. Mm -hmm. Inside was something else, not necessarily a body, but some kind of intelligence. This, whatever it was, let him know that he should keep calm and there there weren't dangers or anything like that. These shells, these boxes, uh, were shivering, vibrating like air during a scorching hot summer day. That's my quote. Um, (laughs) You know, know, to make it more... Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The the only sound he could hear during the event was the buzzing from the transmitter station itself. Slowly... At the same speed as a human walking calmly. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. that's a quote from him. Um, yeah, a human walking calmly. The beings, or let's call them boxes, entered the station and seemed to inspect the interiors and the machines. This went on for like five to ten minutes. And, uh, uh, you know, f- until they left, basically. He stood there by the door and they walked out and they, they floated out and into the into this tunnel in the craft and kind of got sucked into it. And then the, the craft flew away. And <laughs> he wasn't paralyzed anymore. So, of course, he called the police, but he was smart. So he called a police he knew, a friend who was working at the police who lived a couple of kilometers away who took down his statement and he could actually see the transmitter station from where he, he lived, but couldn't see anything. Uh, then he called his uh, colleagues in Sundsvall again, and he called his wife and all of them thought he was bonkers and mm. asked if he had, you know, if, if he was drunk, basically. <laughs> um, I mean, and- I, I don't blame them because like, 
this is a wild story. And like the sketch of those boxes just coming into the, the room is just like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah. You, you know, this, every time I hear a story like this uh, and I think, and you know, I reason like this, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, you know, if I were about to make up a story about aliens landing, mm-hmm. I would kind of make up a story that was more, believable you know like you know why why choosing floating boxes right why you know you know it's maybe it's just me but that's you know i would you know i would do you know the you know grace or whatever you know something that people can relate to but this is boxes damn it Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah like uh give me something anthropomorphic here not Not some like tall, luminous box-looking things. Like I, I shared the sketch of this on, on Twitter yesterday, and like it, it's just like, what the hell is going on here? Like it doesn't look. Uh, if we're going off of, you know, the idea that what people see are are you know taken from like movies or something like that there is no movie that people are taking this from absolutely no movie nobody has made a movie in which luminous boxes just stroll into a room <laughs> no no you know and, and shell was shell wasn't the guy who you know who imagined things he was a quite you know grounded respected I don't remember his age now. I guess he was, you know, around 40 or end of his uh, 30s. You know, he wasn't that kind of guy that just suddenly, you know, made things up. And I mean, he felt after hearing his wife and colleagues, you know, telling him that he was crazy. Of course, he didn't want to talk about it. But when he finally talked about it, he was more open about it. But it also, it was something that kind of created a stigma. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, around him, and he was seen as this guy who saw these floating boxes. Um, I, I, I absolutely trust his story. I, I don't think he made this up in any way. I think, I mean, for me, that he was calling people both before and after, and there was uh, disturbances on on the uh, on the technical equipment, and uh, for me that says that he didn't fall asleep and dreamt everything. Something right. was going on up there in, in, in you know, but I, I've read so much about the case and I, I just trust the guy. I really, mm-hmm. I really, yeah, trust absolutely. Him. There are those eyewitnesses that, you know, when you read about them and you read their stories and you read their eyewitness testimony, they're, they're absolutely convincing. They, their stories are, you know, in, in especially in the way that they are portrayed or the way that they present themselves, the way that other people view them, they're just absolutely believable. And this guy definitely seems that. And like the sketches of this like uh, transmitter station, it looks like it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Tri the 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 small community, the village where it is, it's you know, it's incredibly small. I think it's. Today, it's like 150 people living there. At the time when this happened, it was like 400 people down in the village. Mm. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a small place. It's, uh, um, you know, far out on the countryside. And um, <laughs> I have a theory that silence, silence and calm, calmness around you kind of attracts this 
phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, when when you cleared your mind, it's like kind of like meditation. If you cleared your mind, if there's no external disturbances, you're you're more uh, there's a higher chance for you to to attract these things, or they are attracted to you. And of all the cases I've been reading and writing about the last year or so, all of them are are set in this quiet. Uh, you know, quiet, far away environments. You know, um, and I, 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 I think that's so beautiful. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that also gets into the idea of like when people go off into the woods or something like that. A lot of the times, they're just going to seek the solitude of a silent place. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't you know beings from uh, someplace else be attracted to that too? That's it's a you know completely. Uh, amazing idea you know yeah and i i mean i i wish i could experience it myself you know i know you you had experiences but i've i've always been living near cities or i'm mm. living five kilometers from the biggest airport in sweden you know so i have airplanes all day long or you know it's yeah uh, so it's like uh, i i i never have the, the the chance just to explore this idea more because i would love to to have this kind of experience you know um ah, anyway i i definitely know that feeling of having the urge to look somewhere to see something i've <laughs> had that happen to me in my life so like i could relate i could understand of i should go outside right now yes i will go outside right now please implore me to come outside right now these luminous these luminous boxes need to come inside okay cool <laughs> yeah it's it's like yeah i love that uh, I, I before we leave this case, I would like to mention that uh, on the exact same spot in 1977, on the exact same spot, uh, a, a guy called Kurt, I think, um, uh, I love that name, Kurt. It sounds so cool. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, he was uh, he was out driving with his car, and he was kind of, kind of shortwave radio amateur. And he went up to the transmitter station to get better, you know, connection with the, with the people he was talking with in in his radio equipment. And he sees a, a small UFO, a small like hovering spaceship down in this depression, um, uh, and with three figures outside. And uh, he looks at them; they look at him. He gets scared. And he starts his car and drives down from this little hill. And suddenly they appear in front of him on the road, kind of blocking the road. Mm. And he gets so scared. He, 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 he turns off his lights and backs the car like 10 meters or something like that. And when he turns on the light again, they're gone. And of course, he drives like hell to get away from there. Um, he was actually the first one uh, outside the, the, the police, the... the um, the wife and the colleagues that uh, Shell called that faithful night in 1969. Um, so I find it very interesting that a friend of his experienced something quite similar, but not as spectacular mm-hmm. uh, on the same spot. Um, I personally have a theory that he might have mistaken some teenagers with their snowmobile or, you know, car or something like that and you know he kind of worked worked himself up you know believing it was some kind of ufo and aliens i don't know but it's 
kind of fascinating. It's a it's a nice, interesting side story to 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 everything. Even if I'm not I'm not as convinced there as with the original story. Yeah, uh, I, I would love to go there one day, and I will do that. Absolutely, man. It, it mm-hmm. sounds like uh, it just sounds like a Buckwild, you know, place for stuff to happen because it's just so <laughs> mundane of an area. So I dig that. I totally dig that. So the the next story that I have, it's a short one, but I think what's interesting is that there are accompanying photographs that, to my knowledge, have not been debunked. Like they may not be the best quality photographs, but one of the photographs is like a triangular shaped object that you know looks really solid it looks like a you know a a really interesting um like photographs that uh and what's interesting more here is that this is a case in which an object is seen coming from another object so uh his name is ake leon um Okay. And, uh, you know, this is November 11th, 1973. Uh, where is he from here? Because I know I will butcher the pronunciation of this. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's, uh, um, no, I don't have the, it's, it's uh, up in Norrbotten, uh, once yeah. again, very high up close to Finland. And to be honest, many of these names are quite difficult even for me to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, to pronounce. So I'm just, I'm 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 fine. I'm I'm having the, a book here. Okay, okay. Let's see now. Uh, Pentea, uh, Pentea. Okay, okay. Pentea. Yeah. Pentea. Can you say it? Yeah, Pantia. Pantia. Okay. Yes, um, good, good, good. I like it. Okay, so he's in Pantia, and um, he bar he goes outside. He borrows his niece's camera. It's about eleven ten in the morning, and he's going outside. He's going to take some uh, nature photographs, and kind of absentmindedly he um just takes a photograph of something he sees in the sky he's not really sure what it is but he snaps a photograph and and he just kind of walks towards this meadow that's about 200 yards from his home and um he takes a picture towards the woods and um you know this is it it seems kind of like a very serene place especially when you look in the photographs like it's absolutely beautiful where he is um you know woods lake it's not unlike uh what you see where i live uh but probably like um it's probably on par i live in one of the only only spots in new york state where uh, it's pretty untouched. It's mm-hmm. um, there are regulation. Um, there are regulation agencies, two of them, that um, ensure that you know their deforestation is at a minimum. And like uh, when you build anything in uh, in this area, you have to get permits out the wazoo to do anything. So um, it, it kind of reminds me of where I live. He catches sight of this object. Uh, in the sky and he kind of dismisses it as a balloon but as it comes closer you can see that it's actually ovular in shape and it's and like as he comes close as it comes closer it's like gradually flattening out so it's this disc-shaped object and uh (laughs) the direct quote here is it resembled an angular loaf so like that to me is like what an angular loaf (laughs) okay (laughs) Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just like um 
what 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 do you mean an angular loaf like a loaf of what (laughs) (laughs) well um but i but i respect i respect the the description because like sometimes you know what you really don't have the language to describe what you what you're seeing so what's the first thing that comes to mind well i saw this loaf of bread in the sky that's what i think of at first when he's saying this but i'm like yeah, I, I i mean it's it's like uh many of those of these things you know you, you you never you never seen anything like it you know i i yeah. i must i mean i I expect it must be very, very difficult to to try to for 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 your brain to your for your mind to comprehend what you're. Oh yeah, watching, you know? absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, he describes this object. It's like an aluminum color, and it's kind of got this dark spot in the middle of it. But um, the objects seem to be performing this like maneuver in the sky, and it was moving at this incredibly. Uh, fast speed and it would kind of change speeds at certain points you know going fast and then like you know performing a maneuver and speeding up again and without warning this triangular shaped object ejects from the bottom and it makes this wide curve up uh goes down and then back up toward the direction that the object that it came from was headed and he starts to snap. He took about like four more photographs, something like that. I think he took like seven photographs in total. And um, the first object, uh, the first thing is the disc shaped object that you can see. And like these images are kind of blurry, but again, the, the, the second photo that he takes is of this triangular object. And when you zoom in on it, it is, I don't really know how to explain it. I don't understand like how you would fake that, but like, I, I'm not saying that you couldn't, but um, it's just, uh, it's a very uh, interesting set of photographs that I don't, I don't think anybody really talks about because one, they probably don't know anything about it, but two, but two, they're just, they're interesting to look at. And maybe part of it's just the way that they were presented in, flying saucer review but like that triangular shaped craft is on the cover of it and when the story was published triangular shaped craft were not very popular uh, as they are now in terms of like uh, high reports of uh, this particular ufo shape you know there were scattering of reports from like the late 60s and into the 70s but uh, at the time this this shape was not very well known so i i think that's interesting and the photographs were examined by a guy named G.J. Bunker, who he noted that uh, he was really bad at developing the photographs when he finally <laughs> did. He was just like, there's all these like defective things that are defective with it. He's got, oh, there's an acid stain there. There's this, there's that. But uh, he was ultimately convinced that they be- they were genuine, that these photographs were genuine. They weren't they weren't messed with. So. It's an interesting case of with some interesting interesting photographs. So, what do you think of this case? Uh, first of all, I'm 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 shocked that this case isn't more well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, outside of Sweden, uh, because it's so convincing uh, in every way possible. And uh, I mean, Åke, uh, his name is Ingmar now, uh, nowadays. Uh, has to buy his story 
you know, mm-hmm. it's still, you know, there's there's no no change in in the story itself. You know, uh, th- there was some confusion from actually w- where he took the photos, where he was standing or he, where he was walking. But outside that, there's no no doubt about that. This guy or this this boy at the time, th- there's no hoax involved. There's no fake involved. Something was up there. Um, it's a damn pity that the negatives are are lost. Um, uh, no one knows where they are. They're not at the UFO archive. Uh, they're not at any, you know, magazines. Or um, they were. They were also investigated by by the military, who who said that oh, it's a weather balloon, uh, you know. But <laughs> yeah, typical, typical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Hawking himself, you know, he's like even today, uh, he's quite a famous chemist, by the way. Uh, He's like, no, that wasn't a weather balloon, you know. No, no. <laughs> that was something else. Um, you know, this. I, I, I don't know if I have so much to say about it because there's, I mean, there's no. It's a boy, yeah, walking, taking photos, and those photos are, I think, I think, you know, blurry and all. I think they're still amazing. This is something, and it's so interesting. I don't remember now which year this was. Uh, Seventy uh, three. Yes, 73. Yeah. So I, I don't know what kind of airplanes that was around, you know, mm-hmm. that this could have been, or could be some secret Soviet thing or whatever. I highly doubt it, especially when it, you know, it changed shape and there was like, uh, what I understood also kind of two objects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's like there, there is something more to it than just weather balloons and Soviet technology, you know. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, and here once again this is also a place out in nowhere yeah you know it's silence there is calm there's peace and something like this appear and thankfully he got it on on on, on photo um yeah for I, uh, for someone who seemed to be as like almost not paying attention in in mm. a way like it, it just seemed like his mind was kind of elsewhere when he was snapping these photos just like yeah i'm going to i'm going to get a photo of this i'm going to get a photo of that and it's like oh that's cool let's take some photos bam 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 it, it, yeah it's just like uh amazing that he was able to capture these and like uh when the article was published i think it was like 3 years later in flying sauce review i assume by that time he was uh, a scientist because they're like a uh, scientist captures photographs but uh i'm assuming <laughs> Just like judging by the photograph of him holding up like a sketch of what he saw, like uh, I assume he was like probably in his late teens, early twenties at this point. Yeah, it was in the late teens. I, I don't have the age now, but I mean, he was he was a smart kid and he's a smart man. He's 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 behind one of the biggest laundry chemical products in Sweden, actually. Um, now that's interesting. Uh, that that yeah. is interesting. <laughs> yeah. So so it's it's that's yeah, super interesting thing. And you know, he's one of those. You know, I like to contact people, you know, if I have the name, just send them an email and check, you know, hey, what's going on? And uh, but uh, and I'm thinking about contacting him because but I, I don't I really don't know what else I could ask him about this. Maybe you right. have a maybe you have a suggestion for me because there's not so much more to the story than this. You know what? I, you know what I would really want to know is like what? Because uh, when it comes to witness um uh testimony around this i don't think we have a lot i think we just have like 
you know, I was uh, absolutely like they they had they use the term absentmindedly a, a couple times, but I really want to know what was going through his head. Like, what was he mm-hmm. thinking? Like, what was he uh, feeling in the moment? Because I feel I always feel like those kind of things are are left out unless they're like really noticeable. So I'm always one of those people that's trying to get like uh, kind of that sensory data that's usually missing from these reports and that, uh, you know, cause uh, this yeah. one in particular, it's very, you know, cut and dry, like uh, from moment to moment to moment to moment. So like, you know, just um, what was going through his head and, and, and how has it affected him, you know, over the years? Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that helped him, you know, in his work later. I mean, if you see something, experience something so out of the ordinary, I'm absolutely sure it kind of also, in one way or another, unlocks a different way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, um, But yeah, maybe. I I just want to add here, regarding triangular UFOs, uh, I've been going through a lot of uh, copies, issues of uh, uh, UFO information and UFO Aktuellt, the two Swedish UFO magazines during the 70s and 80s. And there's quite a lot of interesting reports about triangular uh, black UFOs. The, the, basically the ones that uh, people are seeing now, that kind of technology or that kind of visual impact, at least on them. Um, I didn't know that until I started to go through all these old magazines. Uh, very, very, very fascinating how that style of UFO has, you know, it's been quite common here in Sweden and Scandinavia. Yeah, that is interesting because, like, you know, uh, in the U.S., you really don't start to see that stuff until, like, it's not really uh, uh, prevalent until, like, the 1990s. It, it's just, mm-hmm. like, a few scattering, you know, smattering of reports here and there. And, and like, uh, and you would think, given the military technology that the United States was working with back in the day, you would figure you'd see more of these like triangular shaped UFOs like uh, with, um, or like something that looked more like the SR 71 or something like that. But uh, at the same time, I don't think people would be seeing the SR 71 mostly because it flew too high. Like it, <laughs> it would be extremely difficult to see from the ground, like maybe during takeoff. But I mean, the, the things were engineered to the point where um, on the ground they would just be leaking fuel because like once they got into the air, like the the pressure up there would compress everything to keep like the fuel inside. So like I don't know how I would feel in a in a in a plane that is mm-hmm. leaking fuel as I'm sitting on the ground, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure of that either, but uh, yeah, fascinating. I, I one day I will go through and do something about this triangular Swedish cases. I think you know it's it's worth worth digging into. I think um, it's I think it's definitely worth you know uh, you know writing something up about because like uh, like I say we 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 know nothing about this. We 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 honestly think that this is something newer so to to hear that there are stories from you know the the 70s and such of these it, it's fascinating that's absolutely fascinating you've got our next story so which one are you covering next here well we're gonna move uh, forward a couple of years to 1979 and the night between the 3rd and 4th of december 
Lillian Carlson, a 16-year-old young woman, was just turning and twisting in her bed and couldn't fall asleep. It was a brighter than usual moon and she felt restless. At 1 p.m. she felt that the best way to get rid of some of the energy was to get dressed and take a walk. Right behind her house at Långrevsgatan 43, she had Breiviksalperna, a popular recreational area consisting of a pretty large forest with a hill at the south end of it. During summer, a popular place for picnics, walks and parties, and uh, during the winter, skiing and palk. Uh, I don't know if, if you use that word in, in, in the US, you know, it's a form of sledge, popular uh, among kids. In the light of the full moon, she decided to walk counterclockwise around the forest. It's a walk that would take her like 30, 40 minutes, and she would be sleepy when she got home. Deep in her thoughts and hands in her pockets, she felt something, a presence, and looked around. In front of her was some kind of craft, oval-shaped and hovering approximately one meter above ground. She stared perplexed on it for a while, maybe wondering if she was home dreaming instead of being outside in the cold. Next, she sensed that someone was looking at her, and moments later, two entities, alien beings, both around 180 centimeters tall and very slim, came out from behind the craft. There were no defined facial features, and they were dressed in tight, white, silk-like clothes. Lilian couldn't move, but she heard, or maybe more sensed, that they were talking about her between themselves. I felt silly and rid- ridiculous, she said. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's completely fair. I would feel absolutely like beside myself, like, because, uh, you know, um, where I live, I live about maybe about two hours away from the Canadian border. So uh, growing up, uh, the closest city to me is a city of like 100,000 people. It's called Plattsburgh. And uh, a lot of people from like Montreal would come down and like you would catch them looking at you and talking in French. So it's like, I completely understand where this woman is coming from. Yeah. And she was actually thinking like that. And she added, it was as if they thought I looked strange. Uh, (laughs) She could hear them laughing at her. (laughs) So, you know, it was a bit traumatic experience there. Uh, (laughs) As she stood there, uh, she was paralyzed. Uh, The two beings moved toward her, almost seemingly floating in the air on the same height as the craft is like one meter. They stopped and glanced at each other. <laughs> They're quite tricky fellas there. Uh, exchanged a few words, and one of them held something in their hand and stretched it out to her. It looked like, she thought, a chocolate bar. Yummy. Interesting. You know, like, I, I appreciate that. You know, please. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm putting a call out to the aliens right now. Two things. One, if you bring me chocolate, and two, if you tell me to go to the Bahamas, I am game. I am so game right now. I am on my way. Thank you. <laughs> Come to Sweden. You know, it's here. It's happening here. Bahamas, chocolate, everything. You know, become a millionaire. You know, it's it's everything. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna start. Um, you know, 
I'm going to set up a factory. I'm going to get myself some poisonous snakes. That'll be my guards. And uh, we'll see what goes, you know, from there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> looking at the chocolate bar, she didn't move. She couldn't. She was paralyzed. Uh, but a few minutes later, after seemingly discussing the situation with each other, the beings turned back to the craft, walked behind it and disappeared suddenly. And, you know, she couldn't describe how it disappeared. It just wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was like she was free again and she ran crying home and in panic back to her apartment where she, where she shared with a friend and her older brother. And Lilian, she was still very upset when her brother came home later. He was working night at a local newspaper and he encouraged her to seek treatment at the psychiatric clinic, of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a traumatic experience from top to bottom. You go outside, you don't expect, you don't expect to see some like, you know, UFO and some aliens and you especially don't expect them to be laughing at you, which is, you know, absolutely that I understand where that trauma comes from, because it's just like you're a guest in this house, sir. You be a little more respectful when you land on this earth. Thank you very much. And like. I understand that trauma because I think that is also the kind of trauma that could lead to a stand-up comedy career. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, <clears throat> this, this case isn't particularly known at all outside Sweden, hardly in Sweden either. I kind of found it just by looking through some old issues of, of uh, this magazine, UFO Information or UFO Aktuellt. And I was like, wait a minute, like, this is quite spectacular. Mm -hmm. Here you have this girl who gets offered chocolate by two aliens in a yeah. park in her home. It's like, first of all, <clears throat> I, I, I love the detail with chocolate. It's, uh, I mean, we can, we can go that route and talk about fairies and, and uh, food offerings from the right. other side, right. Simon and et cetera, et cetera, which kind of also make this quite unique for being a Swedish case because I haven't found any really similar ones here in, in this part of the world, not, not in Sweden at least. Um, I found through, through the help of Joshua Kutchin's book, A Trojan Feast, mm -hmm. Uh, which is a great book about no it is it's an absolutely fantastic like uh you know all of his books really you know a trojan feast uh a brimstone deceit those are like absolutely essential for anybody who is interested in like the the really um the the kind of connections between fairy lore and ufos and stuff like that uh definitely books you want to check out for sure Oh yeah, definitely. It's like uh, what's amazing. I was like asking on Twitter, I need information about food offerings, and I don't know if it was you or someone else. It's just several posted, you know, a Trojan mm -hmm. feast. There's a whole book only about food offerings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> From... no, uh, yeah. I think uh, uh, Puxley did, and Puxley's great for yeah. that. He always has uh, some great recommendations whenever it comes to anything. And and one thing that I love about Pux is like he's he's very opinionated about where his beliefs fall on the on the ufo and alien spectrum uh but he's he's a he's a great dude i love him yeah i love him i love him um well i i you know i i've <laughs> i've desperately tried to find more info about this and i've been trying to find this girl she should be in her 60s now 
mm-hmm. and but uh, there's I, so far no no trace of her, and I I, I don't want it to be like that. But I'm just yeah. thinking may, maybe this is just something you know this is made up or it's some kind of joke or something like it's a fictional name but then again she was in the local newspaper being interviewed about this at the time or like a year after no like a couple of months uh, after uh and and but but it's also this thing that her brother works at the local newspaper and you know my paranoid brain starts to think mm-hmm. oh, maybe they you know they made something up to make some good headlines or something. But still, this is a Swedish small town. You don't do stuff like this in Sweden uh, at the end of the 70s or early 80s. This, it would be a disaster for you. I yeah. mean, yeah. this is, it, I, I'm sorry to say, but it might happen in the United States or England, <laughs> but it won't happen in Sweden. Not, not you know, not with uh, a, a, a girl in this age uh, who, you know, you, you won't go out and humiliate yourself telling a story about being offered chocolate from aliens like that. It right. won't happen. It's it absurd. Won't... It's absolutely yeah. absurd. It gets into the absurd nature of this phenomenon. Like there are definitely those cases where it's just like, yeah, UFO is seen. Yeah. I saw some aliens get out of this craft, but when they start <laughs> to offer you chocolate, when they start to uh, like a, uh, the Jose Antonio da Silva case is just uh, that I covered with uh, my good buddy, Brian, uh, like the absurdity of that case for one, you know, getting abducted at a time when abductions weren't really uh, a, a much of a thing, especially worldwide. It was a long time before Brazil even learned of the Antonio Villas Boas case, which is like, you know, like the considered the first kind of modern abduction case so uh you know these these are conservative stories but like the fact that he's brought on board some weird looking ufo he's taken to a room where there's like very like pediatrician like murals on the wall of like you know (laughs) stuff that kids would find entertaining in a doctor's office and uh the, the leader uh wants to make an intergalactic arms deal with you it's just like it's so absurd but it's just like you would not talk about that if it didn't happen to you. Like it, it just seems very convincing at that point. Yeah, yeah it, it does. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, you know, it's, it's it, once when we can go back to this. Is are these absurdities a way for the mind to comprehend what? we're experiencing maybe there were i mean she was maybe thinking about chocolate but maybe they were offering her something else i don't know mm-hmm. um i'm just curious you know what would happen if she accepted the chocolate i mean you have this even swedish old stories about uh, fairies offering food and you get lost you know for days in their world uh, there's a couple of cases in france uh, in in the 70s in in, in uh, Trojan feast he's mentioning this which are quite identical to this, actually. Uh, also, two alien beings in both cases who's offering chocolate to 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 people. In the first case, he actually eats the chocolate and <laughs> and wakes up a couple of days later in his apartment. And uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> who knows what happened there? And uh, in the second case, he he eats the chocolate and nothing happens. So maybe it's a test, you know. 
maybe some kind of chemical test. We we feed this human this thing, and if he reacts this way, we can take his organs or something. And I don't know. I have no idea. But right. um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting idea. I'll, I'll give you that. Like uh, I would rather have that than uh, you know. Uh, a cattle mutilation, you know, that, that, that would, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that would definitely be the much more pleasant outcome there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, and well, I think the Lilian case here is underrated and I hope to dig up more information about it during this year. I'm on it. You know, I won't let this go. If she's still around, I'm going to talk to her. That's how it is, you know? Yeah, no. And, and one of the great things about what Fred does and he, and he tweets about this all the time is he goes and he interviews UFO witnesses from these cases from, you know, years back, which is great, which is fantastic, which is what everybody who is interested in the subject is what I should be doing uh, if I had more time to do it. But like, uh, you know, go out there and talking to people is, is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, and I think what's uh, interesting here about, um, my last case here is that we did eventually get an update like decades later, which is, which is nice. So um, this is the uh, Colmarden case uh, and it involves two teenagers that were given the pseudonyms, Eric and Inga, and they were not related, but on August 3rd, August 23rd, 1967, the two were walking around that evening on a road about 30 minutes from their home and this reddish glow kind of caught their sight uh, in the newly darkened sky, and it started lowering itself toward the edge of the forest. And in this eerie silence, Eric and Inga felt like they were being watched by whatever was behind this glow, whatever was making this was just like watching them. So the two grew concerned and decided to cut across a field to head home. And the red glow, it just kind of seemed to be doing its own thing, moving about uh, around the trees. So after putting some distance between them and the red light, the pair noticed a strange yellow light coming from an abandoned cabin on the road, which is like, you know, the creep factor is getting ramped up here. But um, this is the direct quote from the APRO bulletin that this was recorded in. Quote, peculiar yellowish lights were seen hovering in one room. Along the outside wall facing the road, a sort of light cone was fluttering upward from the ground. Sounds were heard, reminding the youngsters of brief muted thuds against a big, uh, a bit of plank, which is, uh, that's an interesting way to describe it. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, um, the, the red glow also reappeared too, and it changed into this uh, whitish glow. And, uh, uh, it seemed to be landing on the far side of a nearby brook. So the two just proceeded home, but uh, nobody was there. So like, I'm assuming they were locked out or something like that, or it, maybe they were just scared, but they were about to head to the home of Eric's sister's house when outside his own home hung this, what he called like a, what they described as a giant flashlight almost that was like hanging three meters or about 10 feet in the air. And this loud whistling sound could be heard coming from the brook and, and kind of racing along it at times. And it was piercing to the ears. And uh, it was kind of compared to the sound of uh, that you would make by blowing a blade of grass between your finger, 
uh, between your hands. So uh, this whistling sound was accompanied by fit, uh, quick footsteps that were coming up from the brook. And they, they came in these like kind of short bursts. They made the decision to head toward the ravine, which is, yeah, that's, yeah, you know, you want to get away from that, whatever that thing is that's like hovering above you or whatever it is. So let's head for the ravine where <laughs> those sounds may be coming from. Okay, cool. They're, um, they're teenagers, you know, they're yeah. stupid. Stuff like that. <laughs> i i i might have done something this stupid you know before but uh but um you know they're headed towards this ravine they're taking this path before they could go much further this figure jumped out onto the path and uh they described this being as being like incredibly agile to the point where it was like floating so from about 10 meters or 32 feet away, the short figure, about 130 centimeters or about four, uh, about four two, um, this figure was kind of indiscernible and it just stood in their path. So Inga got the impression that this was a girl from the village and she moved towards them. And again, this is a this is a quote from the APRO bulletin, quote, as she did so, the creature started to raise its head and arms the motion was accomplished in jerky, uncertain, and shimmying movements. I love that. I love. I love when things shimmy. It's it's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, you, I, I've never heard that word before. Shimmy? No, shimmying. Like I like I know like um, uh, it's um. How do you describe a shimmy? It's just like. Uh, it, it, it's like a dance move almost, you know, it, it, it's just very, very, um, it's, it, it's almost kind of like loosey goosey in the arms a little bit. You got your arms above your head and, uh, you kind of waving them back and, and forth to the side. I'm probably doing a terrible job describing this, but like, this is the idea that I get in my head of what they're seeing. So, um, uh, Eric who, you know, trailed closely behind Inga got a better glimpse of what they called the quote monster's head and face. And it struck him at once that this was something out of this world and grabbing the girl, he cried out, look out. It's not a human being. <laughs> Drama. Yes. <laughs> the, the monster in lifting its arms seemed to hold a protuberance consisting of a short tube protruding from a box-looking apparatus. It was supported by the monster's hands or claws. It was probably heavy, for it was raised with the aid of the other arm, which I'm, I I think they're throwing shade at whatever this alien is, saying, like, it couldn't hold it up with one arm. I'm like, you want to really challenge an alien here? Is this where we're going? <laughs> Well, I mean, in, in the in the Swedish report I read about it, uh, the, they kind of mentioned that it looks nervous. Yeah. So it seems it seems like a quite fragile guy, you know. Yeah, just just a little bit. Uh, so th this object was pointed at the youngsters, but if a weapon, no discharge came from it. Eric noted also a glimmering glimmering arc along the tube. Uh the two fled not long after quote, they observed that the big size of its head was utterly disproportionate to its body. The upper part of the head was covered by something darkish that could 
represent hair or else a hood. This hood was sharply demarcated and ended in a point above the eyes, which were large and dark in the maze of impressions, difficult to account for all of them. Eric definitely retained the fact of a piercing, intensive, and nasty gaze behind those eyes. Skin color was understood to be normal. I don't understand what that means. Like, what is the normal skin color for an alien? Like, what are we? What are we talking about? Are they? Are they white? Are they like green? What are we? Like, to me, like this is. It's as baffling as anything I've said in this report. Well, I, 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 w- I would say, without, I mean, I'm born in 77. Uh, I, I would say that they refer to that it, it, it had a human-like mm. color, you know, a, a, a white person. Because once, I, <laughs> I feel terrible for saying this over and over again about Sweden, but, you know, there were no, there were no black people or Asian people or anything like that in Sweden at this time. There was like nothing. So they could only re- relate to, 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 you know, yeah. Yeah. Typical stereotypical Swedish people. So I guess, I, I, I guess it's that pale pinkish color thereafter. Like gotcha. we have up there. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So I, I, I'm lacking a little cultural context, but I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down here. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So the, the the mouth and nose was not uh, was not distinctly seen together. They look like uh, an X. Perhaps the nose was pointed and underneath the mouth like an inverted V. Arms and legs were very thin. The monster was okay. Th- that these are pot shots right here. The monster was plainly bow legged. Uh, shoes not observed. Like take it easy here. Like maybe it's just struggling to walk around. We don't know. I get it. It's earth. There's a lot of like atmosphere happening here, but like uh, that, that was just hilarious to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) So the following day, Eric found some apples that had been split apart in some of the nearby bushes. Each of the apple halves had five half moon like marks on them. There was also this kind of slime on the surface of them, too. So uh, apparently the alien was dipping into the apples. Um, you know, I ho- certainly hope it paid for that, but I, I don't <laughs> think that that happened there. Um, but uh, they also found three toed footprints, 25 centimeters or about 10 inches long on two successive nights. Following the dramatic incident, Eric's sisters saw lights outside and heard soft footsteps, ticking, and screaming sounds. Um, That's absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Following one evening, two shutters were found torn down from the house. Uh, So these aliens are getting very aggressive. And um, years later, UFO investigators were able to actually track these people down, you know, and they ended up getting married which is interesting. And, uh, you know, they interviewed them and, uh, Inga's story apparently just seemed to be in line with what she reported, you know, back in the day. So this is, um, this is utterly terrifying, you know? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I can't imagine experiencing this, especially with such a bizarre little creature. To me, it's like a, like a nervous, angry little dog. 
Yeah. You know, you know it's like, like you say, it's nervous, bow-legged. You know, it's like, I don't know, some kind of passive aggressiveness over it. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely fair because it's just like um, – it's it's it looks mean it, it it seems aggressive but it's not making too many moves here <laughs> no. well i i mean i'm super i'm i'm i mean what i'm saying i was recently i was down at the ufo archive our archives for the unexplained and i was talking to one of the guys uh, Anders, who met uh, one of the witnesses, the the girl or the the woman, uh, in I think it was two thousand seventeen, um, and uh, he was he, he's really one of the veterans uh, in the in, in the UFO community in Sweden, and he was so incredibly impressed by her. Uh, witness statement they didn't let her look at the material from the time they didn't let her look at the original sketches nothing like that they just went to her and said okay retell the story to us now Mm. and draw what you saw and she draw what is basically exactly the same thing as they uh, described in 1967 or it was like a little while later i guess um and just that part for me feels like wow there's that makes it even scarier yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) because it, it was such a strange sight that it stayed with her for so long you know and uh um, I have, you know, it's uh, the, the whole setup, I think, feels like a horror movie. It feels like a found footage movie. You know, you have these teenagers, uh, they're out on, you know, on, on whatever teenagers do in the darkness. I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, they got married. Uh, and and uh, uh, these this, this details with the almost like the haunted cabin, the, you know the lights inside the the house and the footsteps and the the the, the ticking sound and the mm. lights the lights in the forest uh, before that uh, all that kind of leads up to this terrifying moment and it's uh, it, it gives me goosebumps uh, <laughs> yeah because yeah. What, what 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 the heck is this you know um Right. And uh, I think what's interesting here, and and one of the reasons why I wanted to to, uh, cover this one is because it looks very much, uh, the the sketch of the creature that that they have, it looks very much like the Villa Santina aliens that uh, uh, Rapuzzi uh, Johannes saw in 1947. It's just... The, the sketches are very uncanny and I'll, I'll post them online. It's just um, the way that uh, they draw, like the, the, in particular, like the eyes uh, look very similar, but um, yeah, just uh, uh, everything in these sketches uh, terrifies the hell out of me. You know, I am, <laughs> I'm not a fan. <laughs> she, 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 she told in this later interview uh, they did, the reinvestigation of the case that uh, the days after they also heard noises that she described as monkey monkeys 
interesting yeah and it kind of fits to the the style of this creature i think you know yeah because i you know i don't know if people know this or not sweden is not exactly known for its monkeys just just want to put that out there (laughs) no very few monkeys here i'll tell you that uh so so I, f- I find that I, uh, that's a detail I like. You know, did, did, did this creature or creatures hang around longer? Uh, was it, I mean, they they left footprints. I have no idea why they didn't just take a photo of it or something like that. But remember, the, the original investigation was made a couple of years later, I think. Um, uh, there is some... I mean, Sven Sven Schalin, who did the investigation, he, he was the one who who first got the information and went mm. and met met them. He, ha- I mean, he he was very biased towards aliens. Everything was aliens to him. There was no doubt about oh, it. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even if you read his stuff from back in the day, you you definitely get that kind of impression because, like, uh, you, you'd come across an article from Flying Saucer Review. It's like, oh, really? It's aliens, huh? Cool. Always yeah, <laughs> aliens, huh? <laughs> Interesting. I, I don't think your theory holds up, but I respect the investigations that you do because, like, he was pretty—you know—he's pretty prominent uh, in in the area. Uh, you know, from oh yeah, from what I you know, uh, you know, Sweden, Finland. Uh, he he had a reputation. Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, but I mean, what what makes this story hold up so well is the. Uh, the, the 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 later uh, witness statements from from the woman uh, mm-hmm. without a doubt and you know because she had a many many years just to invent new details and and it was more like she was retracted details from it uh, she had forgotten the lights before they met the creature for example um, which is quite okay I mean it's like what was it 40 50 years later I can I can I can imagine that your focus will be on the monster itself and not some lights before. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, after a while, she felt, yeah, there was probably some lights also. So, su- super, super interesting case. Uh, uh, also, one of those, I would say, I, one of those really unexplainable ones we have in Sweden. Uh, I think they have it on a list of, you know, the t- 10. The, 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 the ten cases that they can't find a logical answer to mm. uh, uh, in UFO Sweden. I think so. Uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 worth digging into, and I would love to talk with her at least. Uh, the 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 boy and the the man doesn't want to talk with it. I find it very very funny that he he screams out, "Watch out! It's not a human." Uh, or it's <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely because it's, it's just like, it's like uh, is this is this someone i know like are they playing a prank on me i'm just gonna go find out no it's not a human <laughs> uh, well um yeah great case i'm i'm great case anyway yeah so yeah. uh fred you got you've got the last story for us so uh what, what are you bringing to the table for the last one here Oh, we're going to the, the beautiful 80s, Swedish 80s. It was on February. February. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, it, I, I was much better in the beginning of this recording, but I will. <clears throat> That's what happens, man. You get loosey goosey. You get a few laughs mm-hmm. in you, and you, you get you get yourself comfortable. That's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I will. I will. <clears throat> it was on February 3rd, 1984. And Ante Jonsson 
was on his way home along the icy, snowy roads from Ingelstad to his home in Tingsryd. Well, you, you can see this in front of you now, the icy, snowy roads, you know, mm-hmm. it's a Swedish countryside. It was close to 1 p.m. in the morning and he wanted to get some sleep after spending the evening with friends. The poor visibility made him slow down a bit near a field. It was a few kilometers from the community of Veckelsong, a place where he had encountered moose before. So, you know, it's a common common form of accident in, in the Swedish winter. You know, you crash into mooses and that's not fun. You might no, think, no. you, you know, probably I won't explain how, how nasty it can how, be. So. How, okay, so big question. How big are your moose there? Because ours well, they, are... They, they're gigantic. Yeah. It's like, have you seen The, the Mist? Yeah, the Stephen King movie. Yeah, you see these giants. In yeah, the end. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of like what we yeah. have here. Yeah, I mean that's that's what you because the moose that we see they generally come down from Canada and like they just stand there in the middle of the road. Like you're not going to get them to move. They'll move when they want to. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to Ante. He didn't see any moose this night, but moments before his main observation he saw a dark short figure walking on the road but didn't give it much thought we'll get back to that something a lot more spectacular would steal his attention just before reaching the field he noticed something on the far end of the pasture and he cranked down the car window to get a better look At the distance of 100 meters, he saw a huge object in the darkness, black itself, but still very visible in the darkness of the night. He measured it to be around 70 to 80 meters long and 10 meters in height. It was hovering not far from the ground, and it looked like a submarine with sloping ends and an increase in the middle. Ante, as the amateur photographer, he was discovered that he, for once didn't bring his camera with him. That's typical. <laughs> yes. <You know>? yes. <laughs> why, why? <laughs> why? Why? Always. <laughs> like, it, it, it's, a, it's a tale as old as time. You know, this is my profession. I've always got a camera on me. You know what? Didn't have a camera on me. Ah, it's, it's typical. <laughs> typical, yeah. Anyway, but he wanted to take a chance. So he drove quickly home, uh, got his camera uh, with the hope that object still would be present there, of course, when he came back. Uh, he told his wife what was happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, she, she woke up from him dashing into the house and the bedroom and getting his equipment. An interesting detail is that she was sure that he told her that he was together with another man that there were two people seeing this. Mm. Uh, this is something that kind of gets lost later in the story, which I, but I, I, I always wonder what's going on there. Uh, yeah. Uh, arriving at the field again, the object had disappeared. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo. But the snow had decreased and the overall visibility was better. And he decided to drive around to see if it was still around somewhere. After searching for a while, he gave up and was about to turn the car around when he had to step on the brakes out of pure surprise. In front of him, just by a crossing between his road and the main one, another object was hovering, similar to the one before, but smaller. 15 to 20 meters in length and 5 to 10 meters in height. The car, a Saab 99, spun around and stopped just one or two meters from the object. It had three bulges underneath the bottom and the color was matte black. It was a frightening sight, especially when it was so close. 
He now just wanted to get away from there. While turning around the car, the Saab 99, you can't imagine how I tried to really find out what car he had. And I, it, it's absolutely pointless, but it's a Saab 99. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> uh, it's like I've been <laughs> so many newspapers just to see the car. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> while turning around the car, he lost control once again and skidded into a snowbank along the road and got stuck. When looking up at the terrifying sight again, he saw, to his relief, that it had disappeared. But now he was stuck in the snow and he still wanted to get away from there as fast as possible. When opening the door to step out for the reason to push the car into freedom, he felt something grasping his left arm hard. It was a short being dressed in a cloak and hood, no less than 60 to 90 centimeters in height. It almost looked cubic in shape, both what he could sense of the body and the head. The creature, or whatever it was, pulled him violently from his vehicle. He screamed and tried to get himself loose from the grip, and soon, after some force, he managed to free himself and ran towards a couple of nearby houses. From the side of the road then came a couple of other creatures of the same kind that started to drag him with them, pulling his clothes. With fear in his eyes, he saw why. Further away, a similar object, or maybe the same as the one he almost crashed into minutes before, stood waiting, and he had the terrible feeling that they wanted to bring him to it. Ante panicked and fought for his life, but uh, when the headlights of a big truck suddenly shone up the nearby main road and slowly drove by, the creatures let go of their grips and disappeared. Exhausted, he stumbled back to his car, fell down and crawled the rest of the way. And then he didn't remember anything until he woke up at the hospital. This is a quite action-packed little story. Uh, this I must is say. terrifying. Uh, uh, like, yeah. utterly terrifying. Like, we've got some more boxy-looking dudes that are pulling a guy out of his vehicle. They want to bring him to their UFO thankfully there's another path you know another car coming by like i am terrified right now like that is that is the worst nightmare to have yeah and i mean in in those early descriptions of the beings he kind of describes them as have you seen the movie communion yes uh, uh, it yeah. is it is like uh so he's what he's describing is like the little blue guys basically yeah, exactly yeah uh very cubic in shape with with this uh, uh who on cloaks um <clears throat> he also later made a drawing and they was a little bit more hairy kind of looked in later years they kind of looked more like a like a fat evok of some kind evok of some kind you know mm. this cuddly teddy bear from star wars yep uh, so but the the original description is quite terrifying you have this nasty violent creatures dragging him to a matte black uh, ufo uh i i mean i would be scared shitless you know no i'm scared <laughs> shitless as we speak <laughs> there is though there is one very, very interesting thing with this story. Uh, because he, you know, he managed to get back to the car and he fainted. Uh, there was uh, someone who called the police around the same time. 
someone had uh, driven by with a car. They saw uh, Ante's car uh, in the snow with a big black object hovering above it. Uh, and they got scared and they, they, you know, they found the nearest phone booth and called the police. And the police said, wait there for us. Wait, wait for us and we'll talk more. But this person, this man who called, uh, didn't show up. Uh, but still, there was, if it wasn't Ante himself doing some, you know, hoaxy thing, there was another witness who actually saw parts of this event happening. Yeah. Uh, the crash car, the, the matte black UFO. Uh, and I, I, they haven't managed to trace this person. Uh, he, I think he, he said the name, but they haven't really been able to, you know, find anyone who fits in that description, which is a damn pity. Uh, maybe he also felt like this is crazy. You know, he, he yeah. doesn't want his identity, you know, involved in this, you know, um, uh, but this is, this, this created big headlines in 1984 and, uh, um, Ante got quite changed to the positive after this he this kind of created a whole chain reaction of of um, uh, contact experiences uh, and he was never sure himself if he was going mad or if something was actually happening uh, but they contacted him, you know, well up until his death, basically. And they, they gave him gifts that he wasn't allowed to show anyone, of course. Uh, and uh, they were they were mostly interested in, like, his well-being. They, they didn't have a ma- message, you know, be kind to, to the planet or anything like that. They were like, hey, how are you doing? Everything fine? You're happy? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, okay. This is something that I've noticed from these Swedish cases involving like kind of approach. I wouldn't say approachable aliens, but like people who have had like contact for, you know, repeated contacts, like the aliens generally seem more contacty ish. Like they may look terrifying, but like they seem more pleasant. They like, they may give you missions. They may ask about your well-being, but we didn't. Man, that's a far cry from the Greys and, and stuff like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it it might be so. It feels like <clears throat> it feels like uh, the, the 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 aliens contacting the contactees in Sweden are are less interested in 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 you know in doing something with a purpose yeah for me you know it kind of just either leads nowhere or it's just like you know like in Ante's case it was more like hey you're fine yeah good yeah be happy and he was happy this changed him for the better he 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 loved this experience uh it may according to himself he became a happier more calm person uh so he never you know of course, the the incident itself was scary, but afterwards he was like quite chill with it. It it did him only good. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is which is interesting because like um, you know, especially in the eighties when a lot of abduction cases are coming to the to the front, and that kind of becomes the image of the UFO. Here you have this guy who ultimately was going to be abducted, and he kind of gets saved by a, a passing car, but. That also begs the question, if you're an alien coming from someplace else and you're trying to take somebody, 
you're you're making this scene that really kind of feeds into that idea that you have that these people are attracted to kind of silence or at least yeah. this like minimalist uh, uh like uh one singular witness why is it always one singular witness and why is it every single time that uh this keeps coming up where people are involved in something somebody else comes by and the ufo or you know and everybody lets go and it disappears like it really makes you wonder yeah 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 absolutely you know and it's um especially with this swedish cases all all of them i've been i mean you know more about international cases or 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 american cases I, i i don't know if I, I have the feeling that the the the, the, the far off locations and silence is in general quite important. Also, you know, you you rarely see stuff that happens in the middle of cities. You know, with with yeah. The, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm I, I feel that the 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 silence, the location, the 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 personal experience seems to be almost more important than the 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 logic of the uh, of it all you know it's, yeah. it's like the- <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like uh you know the like the 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 two cases that kind of come to mind when you talk about a populous area where something happens virginia which is you know mm. it, it has this reputation for that town of being you know uh, uh the site of this really dramatic alien encounter which is most likely a hoax i don't think the the brazilian military gave a very great explanation for it oh yeah there's there are a couple of uh dwarfs is what they said i'm like um okay so that that's interesting but like that and the uh linda napolitano abduction case the brooklyn bridge abduction which is you know mired in as much controversy so yeah like there is definitely this um these cases that happen in these rural areas they kind of they they seem more credible because of where they occur you know yeah yeah the yeah absolutely and and at the same time i guess that's where the skeptics and the bunkers don't agree yeah for them i i guess the 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 far off locations and and the lone witness uh says that it makes it less uh, yeah, reliable. But for me, it's the opposite. It's not always, but of course. But there, but maybe because I'm, I'm also more into the esoteric, more, more, let's say, occult vibe of, yeah. of UFO experiences. You know, yeah, there's exactly. something else than nuts and bolts. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that it's these stories that I definitely think uh, push against that that modern narrative of uh you know extraterrestrials coming to this planet and man uh i can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and 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 helping me tell these stories because uh like they're absolutely fantastic so fred thank you for coming on um uh where can people keep up with what you do uh everything you do like uh i know you got twitter but uh where are where can people follow uh everything that you do well, uh, f- first of all, Rob, thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, you know, this this made my 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 weekend. You know, <laughs> I will I will float around like a box 
<laughs> You'll float around like a box that just wants to come in to your uh, transmitter room. Absolutely. Yeah. No, but uh, see, I, I would say that the, the best way to, to hang out with me is on Twitter, Homo Satanis, and Instagram, Homo Satanis. I'm also an avid film fan, and I have a Instagram account called Schmollywood Babylon where I post a lot of movies. But if you want the weirdness and books and sometimes my mood swings, I'd, <laughs> I'd say Twitter <laughs> Twitter, and Homo Sedanis is the best way to connect with me. And, you know, if, if you're a nice, good person, I will follow back. So I'm not one of those assholes who never follows back, you know, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Fr- Fred is one of the best follows on Twitter. Like, seriously, he's, uh, he's Fred, you're, you're a good man. And I appreciate you for, for coming on here and, and, and talking these cases. So, um, you know, for us over at the Our Strange Skies podcast, if you want to follow along with what we're doing, uh, we're on every podcasting app. And, and if you'd like to help us out, leaving a rating and review, it helps. It really does help. It, it puts more attention to the podcast. So uh, please do that if you can. And, you know, share the show on places like Twitter or Instagram or uh, any social media app that totally helps. And, uh, you know, our newest patron is Fred himself. So if you want to become a patron, head on over patreon.com slash your UFO guy. And for three dollars a month, you're going to get early access to this episode. This episode will be up by tomorrow at some point. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quick about that. I, I get these out as quickly as I can. So, um, yeah, go check out Patreon if you want some more content. Uh, we'll be recording a bonus episode here soon. And um, I've got a bunch of other projects. Please go check out like the Order of Podcasters, Rolling Through the Realms. Those are TTRPGs, uh, podcasts and stuff. Um, special thanks, as always, to our wonderful patrons. Uh, their generous support helps me from being as poor as I am. You know, it helps me improve just a little bit. So I always appreciate that. You help keep us afloat. And speaking of floats, thank you to Floats for the use of their song, UFO. Uh, as the intro and outro to this program, a special thanks to Megan Lagerberg for the fantastic new logo that I, it's just uh, the, the tribute to flying sauce review. Absolutely love it. And uh, as always to the great Desdemona for our t-shirts, the designs uh, go check the link tree for those uh, in the show notes. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over the skies of Sweden. In gray, we trust.
Media.